Hello, I'm Merrick Schneider. Welcome to this podcast of articles from the Wall Street Journal, a presentation of Airs LA. You are listening to this recording, which is provided for the use of those who are blind or print impaired. Materials or items read on Airs LA are the copyrighted property of the original authors and publishers. No unauthorized use or duplication is permitted. Today's first article is titled, Allergies Spur Call for Early Boarding by Jacob Passe. Then an article by Bob Green, How Airport Security Changed America. Then Jay Nurborgen wrote an article, Mental Illness Shouldn't Be Kept Out of Sight. And then a group article by Sarah Nassener, Suzanne Casper, and Nick Turamos, Companies Slow Price Bumps After Shoppers Start to Bulk. All these articles are from recent editions of the Wall Street Journal. So let's begin with today's first article, Allergy Spur Call for Early Boarding. Some travelers with food allergies say airlines aren't doing enough to ensure their safety on flights and are asking regulators to step in. Passengers with potentially Life-threatening allergies say that being able to notify flight crews of their medical condition and pre-board flights to clean their seats is crucial. They say the policies vary widely from carrier to carrier, and execution of them can vary from flight to flight. Some of these travelers have called on the Transportation Department to mandate access to pre-boarding and other policies for passengers with allergies. Airline employees often make decisions based on a limited understanding of the medical condition, federal disability regulations, and their own company's policies, food allergy advocates say. An estimated 26 million United States adults and nearly 6 million children have food allergies, based on studies published, respectively, in the medical journals JAMA Network Open and Pediatric. Shellfish, milk, peanuts, and tree nuts are among the most common allergies, according to Food Allergy Research and Education, a nonprofit. Allergies can trigger anaphylaxis, a severe reaction that can cause death in less than 15 minutes, according to the Allergy and Asthma Network. For some, accidentally touching crumbs of food on a tray table and then eating or rubbing one's eye can trigger an episode. Matthew Piker, a 20-year-old college student from New Hampshire who is allergic to peanuts and tree nuts, says an American Airlines gate agent wouldn't let him pre-board during a flight from Las Vegas to Charlotte, North Carolina in September. On two other American flights, he says gate agents let him pre-board after initially hesitating. On one flight, he says he found crumbs on his tray table while cleaning his seat. We're dedicated to providing a a positive travel experience for all customers, an American Airlines spokeswoman said in an email. After the Wall Street Journal reached out to American for comment, Mr. Pickener says he spoke with a company representative about his concerns and was offered a $150 credit. Airline policies on allergies differ widely. Delta Airlines and JetBlue Airways are among the carriers that let people note their allergies when booking a flight online. Travelers on United Airlines must contact customer service after booking, 
If a passenger notifies an airline of an allergy in advance, some airlines will change the food offered on flights. In recent months, the Department of Transportation has received formal complaints against Southwest Airlines and United regarding their treatment of passengers with food allergies. A 2019 Department of Transportation order in response to complaints involving American Airlines stated that not letting passengers with allergies pre-board puts an airline in violation of the Air Carrier Access Act, a law that prohibits airlines from discriminating against people with disabilities. American revised its pre-boarding policy and the complaints were dismissed. A DOT spokeswoman said in an email that passengers who need additional time to wipe down their seating areas before a flight must be allowed to pre-board. The spokeswoman added that airlines can request that passengers provide a medical certificate, such as a written statement from a doctor, saying the passenger can safely fly as a condition of travel. Boarding before other passengers is the most important step travelers with food allergies can take to prevent an in-flight reaction, says Leanne Mandelbaum, founder of No Nut Traveler, a nonprofit focused on passengers with food allergies. Humans are messy, and you don't know who sat in the seat before you, she says. Beyond wiping down seats, some travelers place disposable covers on the seat and armrests to prevent contact. Pre-boarding is an issue with many airlines because the time it takes to board an aircraft has a direct impact on profitability, says Ahmed Abelgani, Associate Dean for Research at the O'Malley College of Business at Embry-Riddle Aeronautical University in Daytona Beach, Florida. Boarding flights quickly is critical to maintaining the tight turnaround times that allow airlines to operate more flights and prevent complaints from passengers eager to leave the airport. Southwest says it stopped allowing passengers with severe peanut allergies to pre-board in September. That prompted a group of advocacy organizations and nonprofits to file a DOT complaint against the airline. A Southwest spokesman attributed the change to an unintentional internal miscommunication. The airline reverted to the old policy on December 15th. Allergy advocates argue Southwest's policy may not help people with other food allergies since the written policy only refers to people with nut allergies. When Southwest flip-flops back and forth on compliance with the law, that creates confusion in the people on the ground who have to implement these policies with passengers, and it makes it that much more likely that even people with peanut allergies will be denied pre-boarding, says Mary Vargas, a lawyer representing the allergy groups in the Department of Transportation complaint. United is the subject of a DOT complaint filed by an unnamed business traveler who said she was kicked off a flight in June after disclosing her severe food allergy to a flight attendant. In the complaint, the traveler said she incurred over $1,400 in additional travel expenses after renting a car to reach her destination. Ms. Vargas also represents the traveler in the United complaint. United spokeswoman said the airline doesn't comment on active cases. The DOT declined to comment on the pending complaints.
United updated its policy this month concerning customers with food allergies to say that people with severe allergies can notify flight attendants to request an allergy buffer zone around their seat. And now the article by Bob Green, How Airport Security Changed America. Fifty years ago this month, America changed, perhaps permanently. It didn't feel like it at the time. It just felt like an interesting story about the nation's airports. To understand the impact of what happened in January 1973, it helps to recall what things were like in December 1972. If you arrived at an airport with or without a ticket, you could walk right through the terminal and up to any gate. No one would stop you or ask you to prove who you were. You could carry whatever you wanted onto your flight. It's not as if someone was going to look into your bag. Firearms, knives, explosives. If you were concealing them beneath your coat, no one would know. When you landed, your family might be waiting at the gate to greet you. They, too, had strolled through the airport. All that changed as 1973 arrived. To combat a spate of hijackings on commercial flights, the Federal Aviation Administration implemented an emergency edict. Every passenger in every carry-on bag in every airport had to be screened, either by metal detectors or hand searches. Across the country, the initial rollout was a bit haphazard. Walk-through detectors weren't widely available. At Tri-City Airport in Labette County, Kansas, the Parsons Sun reported, a flight attendant will scan all persons with a hand-operated electro-search device past a few inches from their bodies. A Frontier Airlines executive said, We have to look at everything it squawks at. In Evansville, Indiana, Senator Vance Hartke refused to be screened. He said that with rising indignation, he objected to the searches, and besides, he was not even carrying luggage. In Buffalo, New York, a World War II combat veteran was stopped. He explained that he still had shrapnel in his body. No one was certain how long the searches would be enforced. Certainly no one anticipated the multi-checkpoint, quasi-military-style security encampments that have become standard at airports since September 11, 2001. But with a broader aspect of American life started to shift in a way that was subtle, yet obvious in retrospect, the default assumptions that people could trust one another, that the person next to you on the sidewalk meant you no harm, was officially called into question. So much of what has transpired since, in the name of security, is an outgrowth of what happened in airports 50 years ago. Surveillance cameras on every street corner and in every business. Facial recognition technology to monitor crowds. Tightly sealed consumer and grocery products. Mandatory photo ID in just about every area of daily life. All of it silently screams the modern message, be ever wary. It's hard to remember when things were different, but somehow they were. Next time you're waiting to be screened in a busy airport, look around and try to imagine all the barriers gone. It's like dreaming of a lost civilization. And now, 
mental illness shouldn't be kept out of sight. A writer who witnessed his brother's lifelong struggles learned that sustained personal relationships are crucial for people with mental illness. By J. Nurborgen. By the time my brother Robert died in 2015, at the age of 72, he had spent more than 50 years in and out of mental hospitals, psych wards, and halfway houses in and around New York City. Because our parents had bailed him out early on and retired to Florida, I was his caretaker and advocate during these years. His first major psychotic breakdown occurred when he was 19. By the time he was hospitalized at the Bronx Psychiatric Center, formerly known as Bronx State Hospital in 1997, it was the consensus of the staff there that he would probably have to live in a state hospital for the rest of his life. But Dr. Alvin Pam, the director of psychology at Bronx State, disagreed, and within a year of treatment under his direction, a seeming miracle occurred, due in part to a positive reaction to an antipsychotic drug that Robert had never before taken. The change in his behavior was so dramatic that the staff began preparing him for discharge. Robert was clear-thinking. His delusions, tremors, and tantrums disappeared. In perhaps the clearest sign of his improved mental health, his sense of humor returned. Dr. Pan called one afternoon to tell me that, having been asked to provide a urine sample for a routine medical exam, Robert filled the flask, brought it to a nurse, and then pulled back the flask. I'd like a receipt, please, he said. A week or so later, Robert called me one evening and began shouting, Alan's gone, Alan's gone, Alan's gone, after which he hung up. When I called back, he refused to come to the phone. And when I called Dr. Pam the next morning, he informed me that Alan, Robert's social worker, with whom he had an excellent relationship, had been transferred to another state hospital without warning. In the days and weeks that followed Alan's departure, Robert began having tantrums, hallucinations, bodily tremors, irrational fears, and panic attacks, and he became, by turns, dangerously manic and depressed. It would be more than a year before the hospital would again prepare him for discharge. Why did the medication that worked so well on Tuesday stop working on Wednesday? I'm convinced that one reason is that Robert was deprived of a relationship that had been a crucial element in his life and thus in his recovery. Due to the patience and kindness of the staff at Bronx State and to the treatment plan that Dr. Pam organized for him, Robert did eventually recover after Alan's departure. He was discharged in 1999, and after nearly 40 years in city and state psychiatric facilities, he was able to live in a supervised residence for a dozen consecutive years. He got around the city on his own, held down part-time jobs, and enjoyed the best years of his adult life. According to the National Institute of Mental Health, more than 14 million Americans suffer from a mental illness that results in serious functional impairment, and more than 3 million experience this impairment on a long-term chronic basis. Recently, the media has paid abundant attention to America's mental health crisis, discussing the role of politics and funding, the medical establishment, 
new treatments for depression and teenage mental health. Politicians in the media often blame people with mental illness for the recent rise in violent crime and homelessness. It is estimated that a third of individuals experiencing homelessness have serious mental illness. In fact, people with mental illness are much more likely to be victims of crime than perpetrators. Crimes by those with a mental disorder usually have something to do with drug addiction. Largely ignored in this discussion is what to do about the millions of people who, like Robert, suffer severe chronic mental illness. The longer they are out of their minds, the more they remain out of sight to their family and friends, often abandoned in psychiatric institutions, prisons, halfway houses, or on the street. During the years after Robert's discharge from Bronx State, I worked on a book about people who had been institutionalized for mental illness, some for more than a dozen years, but who, unlike Robert, had recovered into full lives. They were doctors, teachers, lawyers, custodians, movie producers, and social workers. Some attributed their recovery to medications or a particular program. Some said they had found God. But they all, without exception, said that the key element in their recovery was an ongoing relationship with an individual human being. Most of the time, this person was a professional, a social worker, psychologist, nurse, or doctor. Sometimes it was a clergyman or a family member. But in every instance, recovery was made possible by an individual who said, in effect, I believe in your ability to recover, to have a better life, and I am going to stick with you until you do. During Robert's two years at Bronx State, Dr. Pam assigned a psychiatric resident to see him for basic, old-fashioned talk therapy for at least an hour every week. In other hospitals and residences, I pleaded with the administrators administrators for any form of psychotherapy for Robert, to have someone talk to him regularly and get to know him in all his complexity and uniqueness. Every time I received the same answer, no resources. Thanks in large part to the excellent treatment that Robert received at a critical point in his life, he managed to survive with his mind, spirit, and sense of humor largely intact to the same age that our father reached. Millions of others, mad, homeless, abandoned, neglected, drugged, confused, are far less fortunate. Yet they remain at least as complicated and and human as the rest of us. And if we can find the resources to provide them with the care that they need, they might have a chance to lead what we too often take for granted, our glorious, imperfect lives. And now the articles, Companies Slow Price Bumps After Shoppers Start to Balk. After pushing prices to new heights last year, some companies are starting to pull back. It could be another sign that inflation is starting to turn a corner. Conagra Brands, which makes Hunt's Ketchup and Slim Jim's Meat Sticks, raised prices 17% in the latest quarter, on top of two previous quarters when it increased prices more than 10%. The company said it is done boosting prices for now. ConAgra sales volumes fell 8.4% for the quarter which ended November 27th, which the company attributed in part to shoppers recoiling from the price increases. 
Restaurant chain Hurricane Grill and Wings is trying a different means to the same end. Rather than lower prices to bump sales, it now sells a bucket and a half of chicken wings for the same price as a bucket. The bonanza reflects the falling price of chicken wings, which surged last year, said Andy Whiterhorn, chief executive of franchising company Fat Brands Incorporated, Hurricane Grill and Wings being among its brands. Executives at Constellation Brands, which sells Corona beer, say they plan smaller price increases after higher-than-usual price increases in October slowed sales growth. Many companies raised their prices substantially to offer higher fuel costs and higher prices for ingredients, parts, and labor. As fuel prices have dropped and pandemic supply chain snarls have eased, some of those costs have come down. That is a good sign for the economy. It suggests that some inflation in the past year resulted from extreme supply-demand imbalances brought on by the pandemic and the war in Ukraine and which are now fading. Some companies raised prices not only because their costs were higher, but because they anticipated rising costs, according to a recent study. Those price increases, in turn, drove inflation higher. The study, by economists at the Federal Reserve Bank of Kansas City, found that higher markups, the gap between what a firm charges and what it costs to produce an item, was a major driver of inflation. They concluded that companies in some cases were raising prices in anticipation of future cost pressures rather than because of market power or outside demand. Andrew Glover, a senior economist at the Federal Reserve Bank of Kansas City who was involved in the study, doesn't expect prices to fall this year, he said, but he anticipates that the pace of increase will continue to slow. Even if waning cost pressures give companies less reason to raise prices, that doesn't spell an end to the inflation problem. Fed officials worry that a host of other factors could sustain upward pressure on inflation. China's reopening could boost global demand for commodities and energy, sending prices up. Unemployment at 35% is at a 53-year low. Fed officials fear tight labor markets could sustain higher wage growth, particularly for labor-intensive services. Inflation, which fell from 9.1% in June to 6.5% in December as measured by the Consumer Price Index, is still far above the 2% range, which is the Fed's target and around the level that prevailed before the pandemic. Price gauges that seek to figure out volatile prices showed inflation ran at between 4.5% and 7% in the past 12 months. We welcome these better inflation reports, Fed Chairman Jerome Powell said recently, but I think we're realistic about the broader prospect. The Fed worries consumers will expect inflation to stay high and build it into their behavior. Such inflationary psychology can be self-fulfilling. If consumers believe high prices will persist, they could seek bigger raises and businesses seeing higher labor costs, could continue raising prices. Consumers last year cut back on purchases, suggesting that they were hitting a ceiling on prices they were willing to pay. 
Unit sales of general merchandise, a category that includes home decor and small appliances, fell 7% in 2022 compared with 2021, according to data from IRI and NPD, which tracks store and online purchases. Dollar sales of those items fell 2%, reflecting higher prices. Unit sales of food and beverages fell 3% last year, but on a dollar basis, they rose 10%. That showed consumers were willing to pay higher prices for groceries, but bought fewer items. People need to eat, said Kirshnua Kumar Devi, a president at IRI. Shoppers are nonetheless buying less when possible, and in many cases, buying less expensive versions of necessities, such as toilet paper and laundry detergent. 2023 is the year of cost-cutting for product manufacturers, said Mark Mallow, founder of Nextgear Consulting, a consumer goods advisory and former executive at Clorox Company. On average, expenses should be flat as shipping rates fall, he said, but labor and other costs remain high for some products. Chummy Tea's founder, Josh Newman, raised prices on his t-shirts by about $4 in 2020. He has since lowered them to pre-pandemic levels after sales, which surged during the peak of the COVID-19 pandemic, fell to 2019 levels. The consumer's mindset has changed, Mr. Newman said. They want to save money, and raising prices is not an option for me in 2023, even though many of my costs are still elevated. Oransi LLC, a maker of air purifiers, cut prices on its best-selling model in November by 20%, said Chief Executive Peter Mann. The model had sold for $599 since its September 2020 launch. It is now $399. Mr. Mann said he decided to cut the price to offset waning consumer demand and heightened competition. Interest in air air purifiers soared during the pandemic. While some component costs such as chips are still higher than they were before the pandemic, others, including shipping rates, have fallen making it easier to lower prices without taking too big a hit to profits, Mr. Mann said. Heather K. Brown raised prices at her active and swimwear brand Night Dive by 15% last year. She doesn't think she can raise prices again. People are tightening their purse strings, Ms. K. Brown said. I feel like I'm on a tightrope and trying to balance being able to be profitable enough to keep the business going, but also not wanting to deter customers. This past holiday shopping season, marked by a return of heavy discounting, was weaker than what some companies had expected. Lululemon Athletica Incorporated said that although sales rose recently, its profit margins were squeezed as shoppers bought more items on sale. Walmart, Target, and other large retailers that sell a wider variety of goods such as food, clothes, and decor report quarterly earnings next month, which will include their holiday sales. Large retailers late last year started resisting their suppliers' price increase requests, aiming to boost profits and attract more cash-strapped shoppers by keeping a lid on price increases, according to executives. Some companies 
introducing new products are mindful of price-sensitive shoppers and retailers. Executives behind Beautiful, a new brand of small kitchen appliances and cookware co-owned by actor Drew Barrymore, kept prices low for its introduction to Walmart in 2021. Data from Walmart and other sources indicated that consumer spending was cooling for some categories, said Che Hang, chief executive of Made by Gather, the kitchenware company behind Beautiful. The company worked with manufacturers to lower production costs, he said, which kept prices low and helped gain valuable shelf space near the front of Walmart stores. It just made sense for us to invest in price to drive more demand in a tough environment, Mr. Hong said. Shoppers' resistance to higher prices vary by product. Sales are rising faster for premium versions of butter, despite higher prices slowing shoppers' appetite for less fancy butter. United States dollar sales of Kerrygold butter rose 28% in 2022 compared with 2021, said a spokeswoman for Ornua, the Irish daily cooperative that owns Kerrygold. Volume sales of Kerrygold rose 17%, while overall butter volume sales dropped 2.8% during the same period, she said. The brand's premium positioning and grass-fed credentials helps to attract a different shopper compared with mainstream and store brands, she said. Two sticks of Kerrygold butter cost around $4.18 at Walmart. The store brand butter costs $4.48 for four sticks. The biggest deodorant makers increased prices last year without denting sales. Deodorant sales by dollar rose 22.2% during the last four weeks of the year, and 6.1% by units, according to a Jeffries analysis of Nielsen IQ data. Procter & Gamble Company and Unilever PLC, which together account for 80% of United States deodorant sales, including such brands as Secret, Old Spice, and Suave, each imposed double-digit price increases in the quarter. P&G said this fall that a new aluminum-free offering helped boost sales. It reports quarterly results on Thursday. Jillian Amodio, a 32-year-old mother of two in Annapolis, Maryland, said inflation has changed her shopping habits. She has started buying more food in bulk at Sam's Club and more clothes from Walmart and Amazon, all because of better prices. Anytime I'm at the grocery store, my kids say, Can I get this? Ms. Emodio said. I used to be more lax, but now I'm saying no to the extra chips or the toys. That brings us to the end of today's articles. I'm Merrick Schneider, and I'll be back soon with more articles. Thank you for listening.